Welcome to Catholic Light. Join me, Becca Doherty, each week as we shed a little light while keeping the conversation light. Hi, and welcome back to Catholic Light. Thanks for joining me for another episode. Uh, As I mentioned on last week's episode, we are at the year mark now uh, that this this podcast has been going on, and um, we are at the end of today's episode, we will finish reading half of the catechism. So we're, we're just about to hit the midway point of the catechism. And then uh, I thank you in advance for continuing to join me for another year in which we complete the catechism. So we'll, we're just about done part two, and then we'll enter into parts three and four. So in the second half of today's episode, we'll read paragraphs 1402 through 1433, and we'll round out our discussion of the Eucharist, so the third of the three sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist. And then we'll just start the first of the two sacraments of healing, which is reconciliation or confession, penance, which is perfect if you're listening to this in real time, in that we have just begun another season of Lent together. Um, which is a great time to go to confession, get all scrubbed up and uh, clean and ready for Easter. If you're not listening to this in conjunction with, with the Lenten season, also a good time to go to confession. So let's go. So as we talk about the Eucharist today, I'd like to focus on the word communion. So the Eucharist is often referred to as communion. It goes by uh, a handful of different names. And I think that word, like many things in Catholicism. As we get used to it, as we say it a lot, uh, it's easy to take it for granted and kind of forget some of the meanings or connotations. So I begin with um, this beautiful story that happened to me my senior year of high school, and that was this. I, uh, throughout high school, I worked in my parish office. So I would sit at the front desk, answer phone calls, fill out mass cards, make appointments, greet people, you know, as they came and went. And uh, I guess greet people as they came, say goodbye as they went. And um, I also uh, was a Eucharistic minister where I would bring um, at the end of my my shift on Friday afternoon. So I'd, you know, go to school, go to high school during the day and then walk across the street and work for a couple hours in the parish office. At the end of my my uh, work time, I would um, meet father and he I had a, a little pics. And he would give me communion to bring to a woman who was the grandmother of a parishioner at um, the nursing home down the street. So the woman's name was Annette, and um, she was in a nursing home. And um, we met, I want to say, for the better part of a year. I would I would um, meet with her, you know, mo- mostly weekly, and we would pray together, we would chat, and then we would end our time together um, through uh, a little communion. It wasn't even a communion service, but you know, I would bring her the Eucharist. So there was this one weekend where God in his providence, seeing all, all that was at play, um, basically my, it was senior year. I was thinking of going to Penn state. And so I was going to go up to Penn state that weekend and, um, 
and, you know, visit the campus. And so I think it was a Thursday instead of a Friday that I had contacted Annette and said, you know, hey, could we meet Thursday afternoon instead of Friday? Because I'll, I'll be going right from work up to Penn State. And so as per usual, you know, after my shift, I received the Eucharist and the little pics, went over uh, to the nursing home, we chatted, and she had grown over our, our last, you know, few meetings together. Uh, she had grown more frail and she was an, an older woman and, um, you know, was was getting more and more sick and and frail, and so when I met with her that time, um, she she was very weak, and so we chatted a little bit, we prayed together, and then when it was time to give her the Eucharist, she wasn't able to consume the whole host. So um, I broke the host in half, I gave her half, and then I consumed the other half, and um, we finished our prayers. I gave her a hug. I said, um, all right, Annette, you know, have a good weekend and I'll see you next week. And the next day was Friday. I went to school, you know, worked at the parish office afterwards, went up to, to Penn State. And then I received a call later that night that, um, early in the morning, Annette had passed away. And, um, I tear up thinking of it. It was just, um, so beautiful and so provident of God that he knew that, um, by our regular Friday afternoon, Friday evening meeting time, Annette would have passed away. And so um, God in his providence arranged it so that I would see her one more time Thursday. And we were able in our, our last meeting with each other um, to share the Eucharist, literally share the Eucharist with each other. So when I hear the word communion, I often think of, of this beautiful beautiful story and really it was a gift gift to me um, to have shared this with with my friend um, so when we hear the word communion um, it it can uh, it has the connotation connotes <laughs> a handful of things um, as we read in last week's episode and and uh, we see throughout some of the Vatican II documents we hear in just like common parlance uh, the Eucharist is referred to as communion and um, the altar is often referred to as the table of the Lord so we come into communion with one another as we gather around the altar or the table of the Lord as we we share this meal together of the Eucharist I had a friend at Steubenville, Tim, who, um, maybe this was like a nerdy Steubenville thing, he used the word communio, you know, we're, we're called to be in communion or communio with each other. And um, so sometimes when a group of us were doing something and he didn't necessarily want to do it, he would say, ah, I'll do it for communio. Like, hey, Tim, do you want to, we're going to throw around a Frisbee on the lawn. Like, meh, I was test to study for, but you know what, I'll do it for communio, like to come into communion with you, my friends. Um, or like, hey, Tim, we're going out to dinner. Do you want to join us? Like, eh. I don't really like that restaurant, but you know what? For communio, I'll do it. So communion, um, in referring to the Eucharist as communion, it conjures up that image and reality of all of us coming to the table of the Lord, gathering around the altar to receive the Eucharist and be in communion with one another. Very literally then, it also signifies that we are coming into communion with God, God himself. So human beings as body and soul are able to receive the Lord in his body, blood, soul, and divinity um, in a very real way when we receive the Eucharist. So we, we come into communion or union, relationship, bodily, as we you know, eat the bread and drink the wine, eat the precious body and, and drink the precious blood. We come into communion or unity with God bodily and spiritually. Um, what that, that word communion also signifies is that 
not only are we coming into communion or saying yes to that relationship with God himself, but also with, with all that he has taught, all that he puts forth. Um, so when we go up in the communion line and the priest or the extraordinary minister of the Eucharist says body of Christ and we say amen or I believe and then you know depending on where your church is post covid or in the midst of of covid um you know you receive the go up to receive the precious blood so I say that cuz some churches have not brought back the precious blood yet um the you know the minister says blood of Christ we say amen or I believe we're saying I believe that this is the body of Christ and I believe that this is the blood of Christ not just a symbol um, not just um, you know a memory that we we remember we recall every Sunday or you know daily mass every day but I believe that this is what Christ said it is. Uh, his body and his blood. So think back again to Gospel of John chapter 6, the bread of life discourse where, where Christ says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. This is my body. This is my blood. If you do not eat my flesh and do not drink my blood, you do not have life within you. And again, recall that because this was such um, just like a wild teaching, many left. So many knew that Christ, unlike other times where he had spoken symbolically about bread or leaven of bread, um, he had spoken symbolically about food. He was, they, they knew that he was speaking literally in that recounting in John 6. And so many left because at face value, it's bizarre. It's, it's a, again, wild teaching. And so when we say amen, I believe we are saying uh, amen to union or communion with God himself. And we're saying amen, or I believe, to what Christ taught and the church continues to teach, that this is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And because we can't parse out or pick and choose the teachings of Christ that we agree with and disagree with, um, we're saying amen or I believe to all that Christ taught. So all that Christ taught, um, not only regarding the Eucharist, his body and blood, but what he taught about forgiveness and um, you know, living the gospel, the Beatitudes, what he taught about keeping holy the Sabbath and prayer, all of his teachings hang together. And so when we say amen to one thing, we are saying amen to all things. And we could think of this, maybe it's helpful to think of this in terms of our human relationships. So Dan Doherty is my husband, my friend, father of my children. Um, I believe I say amen to the fact that he is a man, his name is Dan, he's my husband, father of my kids, um, and I affirm, I say yes, I believe to all that is true about him. So um, I'm not a big fan of football, so I don't negate or disagree with the fact that he was a football player and say like, nah, I don't believe that about you, even though we, he and I went to high school together, um, even though I saw him play football and I see pictures of him in his football uniform, I don't pick and choose what I believe about Dan. On a fun side note about Dan and, and playing football, he played football since he was pretty young, and um, later in his career, his illustrious career, uh, he had a number of concussions, and so by the third or fourth concussion, his coach said, like, dude, you're done, no more football, um, but Dan just loved the team and, and loved, you know, being part of the team that he opted to be. Someone offered him this position, and he said yes to being the school mascot. So that while he was not playing football in the games um, at halftime and you know cheering on the team on the side, he he was the mascot and could participate in in a different way. So we were the Council Rock Indians, um, but the school did not want 
um, an Indian mascot. So uh, he was the Council Rock Rock. And it worked really well because his, his last name was Doherty, so he was Doc the Rock. And uh, one of the, the cheerleader, cheerleader's moms made this big, puffy rock costume for him. And so, you know, every game he would suit up in the rock, paint his face, and I think he had like a, like a spirit stick, run around the field like a crazy man, getting the, the crowd going wild. So uh, thank you, Dan Doherty, Doc the Rock, for your service uh, in high school. So um, if we think of this in terms of human relationships, you know, I don't pick and choose what I believe about Dan. He is a reality independent of me, and I say yes to that. I, I, I see that in front of me, and, and I affirm it or acknowledge it, or I, I reject it. I don't pick and choose what, you know, I believe about him. And so we could use that analogy for um, Jesus and the teachings that he puts forth. Um, so he you know, is God. He took on human flesh. He, he lived a human life and he taught and did and said many things and they all hang together, especially because he's God. Um, so they all hang together beautifully and perfectly. And so when we say yes to one thing, we say yes to all of it. So this is a way of saying or getting around to the point, um, uh, point that was made in last week's episode and then something we'll see on the second half of today's episode. And that uh, has to do with being properly disposed for communion and not uh, engaging in intercommunion with other faiths. So last week we read in paragraph 1400 that Eucharistic intercommunion is not possible. And I think that word possible is key because oftentimes um, people look at the church or even think of God as like kind of a finger wagger, like you can't receive the Eucharist or like you can't be a part of this church. And the catechism beautifully says it, it's not that intercommunion is not allowed, it's just not possible. Why? Because if if I were Lutheran and I approached um, communion in a Catholic church, I, I can't, it's not possible for me to say amen because I don't believe that that's the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And when a, the minister offers the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, I don't believe that that's what is going on there. And so I can't say amen to that. Now, vice versa, if I'm, I had a Lutheran friend growing up and I attended her church for, for some of her sacraments, witnessed some of her sacraments. Um, however, I sat in the pew or sat in my seat when it was time for communion because what was going on in the Lutheran church was not something that I believed in. So in, in holding up the bread and wine, which they believed was symbolic uh, for the Last Supper, um, I did not believe that. And so I couldn't say amen. To, I did not believe that that's what Christ did at the Last Supper. And so I couldn't say amen to that. So I think it's worth noting that, that the catechism really chooses the, the wording well in saying that intercommunion is not possible. Um, and we, because we don't believe what other faiths believe, hence different denominations with different beliefs. And so we don't, um, it's really a charity not to put people in a position like, oh, come to my church, you can receive communion. Um, it's really more charitable, even though it doesn't sound like it, to say like, hey, this, you're welcome to attend church with me, but when it's time for communion, you know, feel free to, to sit in your seat or go out for a blessing, um, but don't receive or, you know, don't feel like you have to receive because I know you don't believe that this is the body and blood of Christ. Secondly, or kind of in conjunction with that idea, um, we read in paragraphs 1415 and 1416 today that if one is not properly disposed, uh, for example, if, or I should say, i.e., if one is in a state of mortal sin, we must go to confession before receiving communion. And why is that? 
again, it's not the church saying like, you can't receive as though she's scolding us. Um, but the church is saying you can't, it's not possible because you have cut yourself off from life with God. So when we're in a state of mortal sin, we have completely turned from God. We've cut ourselves off, cut ourselves off from that life of grace. And so, we, we can't receive the Eucharist. We, we're dead to our relationship with God. So th- think of the word mortal, sin, implies a death. Um, and so I heard someone say one time, it sounds, uh, you know, sounds a little bizarre, but we, we would never feed or give communion to a corpse, okay? And so when we're in a state of mortal sin, spiritually, we're a corpse. We've cut ourselves off from God, from that life of grace. And so we need to be brought back into um communion. We need to be brought back to life by God and brought back into relationship with him before we can receive him in the Eucharist. So mortal sin is not um, like a character default or an idiosyncrasy, you know, we just need to like work out or deal with. Um, I was just talking with someone, somehow uh, Bill Cosby's name came up and um, this person with whom I was talking said like, yeah, he had a few problems, but you know, we all have problems. And I was like, problems? I think he like assaulted many women. That's more than a problem. Um, So it's not like mortal sin is like, like, you know, that guy just has like some problems. It's no, it's, we believe that mortal sin is deadly and it needs to be dealt with in confession uh, before receiving the Eucharist. So if we're in a state of mortal sin, we are welcome to attend mass. Um, you know, to participate in the community um, until we can get to confession. But it's, again, not that it's not allowed. It's it's just not possible to receive um, the Eucharist truly when we're in a state of mortal sin. And so we should not approach the altar. We should not um, approach communion to receive the Eucharist if we're in a state of mortal sin. So paragraph 1415 says this, and then 1416 speaks a little more hopefully. 1415 says, anyone who desires to receive Christ in Eucharistic communion must be in a state of grace, must be in the state of grace. Anyone aware of having sinned mortally must not receive communion without having received absolution in the sacrament of penance. 1416 goes on to say, communion with the body and blood of Christ increases the communicant's union with the Lord, forgives his venial sins, and preserves him from grave sins. Since receiving this sacrament strengthens the bonds of charity between the communicant and Christ, it also reinforces the unity of the church as the mystical body of Christ. So if we have cut ourselves off from communion with God and communion with the body of Christ, others, we are invited to go to the sacrament of confession for free and be absolved of our sins. Um, And then we're invited to receive God once again in the Eucharist, which then strengthens our communion with the church, with others as well. When we get to part three of the catechism and discuss the commandments, we'll talk about what constitutes a mortal sin versus a venial sin. But as we just read, venial sin is something that that hurts our relationship with God, um, but doesn't completely cut us off from him or completely... um, kill our relationship with God, whereas mortal sin is deadly. It does. And so again, in part three, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But the good news is that if we are in a state of venial sin, we have venial sins on our soul in our lives, we can receive the Eucharist and the Eucharist actually cleanses us of our venial sins. It's good then to um, confess them the next time we go to confession so as to, um, you know, be helped in not committing them again, um, you know, saying them out loud, getting them off our chest, putting them at the the feet of, of Christ on the cross, um, where he then deals with it and gives us the grace uh, to deal better with them in the future. 
So let's end this first half of the episode once again on a practical note. Uh, as we close our discussion of the Eucharist and start our discussion of reconciliation, uh, between now and next week's episode, let's go to confession. So it's a great, great, it's always a great time, but if, if you're listening to this during Lent, it's a great time to go to confession. Um, if you're not listening during Lent, also a great time to go to confession. And then um, we'll continue to work our way through the, the sacraments of healing, reconciliation, anointing of the sick, and then we have left the sacraments at the service of communion, marriage, and holy orders. So thanks for joining me. We'll take a brief break and then return on the second half of the episode to read paragraphs 1402 through 1433. Thanks for sticking around. You are listening to Catholic Light. Thank you for joining me each week as we read through the Catechism of the Catholic Church and discuss some of its beautiful teachings. Hi, and welcome back. We'll now read Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 1402 through 1433. The Eucharist, Pledge of the Glory to Come. In an ancient prayer, the Church acclaims the mystery of the Eucharist. O sacred banquet, in which Christ is received as food, the memory of his passion is renewed. The soul is filled with grace, and a pledge of the life to come is given to us. If the Eucharist is the memorial of the Passover of the Lord Jesus, if by our communion at the altar we are filled with every heavenly blessing and grace, then the Eucharist is also an anticipation of the heavenly glory. At the Last Supper, the Lord himself directed his disciples' attention toward the fulfillment of the Passover in the kingdom of God. I tell you, I shall not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Whenever the church celebrates the Eucharist, she remembers this promise and turns her gaze to him who is to come. In her prayer, she calls for his coming, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. May your grace come and this world pass away. The church knows that the Lord comes even now in his Eucharist and that he is there in our midst. However, his presence is veiled. Therefore, we celebrate the Eucharist, awaiting the blessed hope and the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, asking to share in your glory when every tear will be wiped away. On that day, we shall see you, our God, as you are. We shall become like you and praise you forever through Christ our Lord. There is no surer pledge or clearer sign of this great hope in the new heavens and new earth, in which righteousness dwells, than the Eucharist. Every time this mystery is celebrated, the work of our redemption is carried on and we break the one bread that provides the medicine of immortality, the antidote for death, and the food that makes us live forever in Jesus Christ. In brief, Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and abides in me and I in him. The Eucharist is the heart and the summit of the church's life. For in it, Christ associates his church and all her members with his sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, offered once for all on the cross to his Father. By this sacrifice, he pours out the graces of salvation on his body, which is the church. The Eucharistic celebration always includes the proclamation of the word of God, thanksgiving to God the Father for all his benefits, above all the gift of his Son, the consecration of bread and wine, and participation in the liturgical banquet by receiving the Lord's body and blood. These elements constitute one single act of worship. The Eucharist is the memorial of Christ's Passover, that is, of the work of salvation accomplished by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, a work made present by the liturgical action. It is Christ himself, the eternal high priest of the new covenant, who, acting through the ministry of the priests, offers the Eucharistic sacrifice. 
and it is the same Christ, really present under the species of bread and wine, who is the offering of the Eucharistic sacrifice. Only validly ordained priests can preside at the Eucharist and consecrate the bread and the wine so that they become the body and blood of the Lord. The essential signs of the Eucharistic sacrament are wheat bread and grape wine, on which the blessing of the Holy Spirit is invoked, and the priest pronounces the words of consecration spoken by Jesus during the Last Supper. This is my body which will be given up for you. This is the cup of my blood. By the consecration, the transubstantiation of the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ is brought about. Under the consecrated species of bread and wine, Christ himself, living and glorious, is present in a true, real, and substantial manner, his body and his blood, with his soul and his divinity. As sacrifice, the Eucharist is also offered in reparation for the sins of the living and the dead and to obtain spiritual or temporal benefits from God. Anyone who desires to receive Christ in Eucharistic communion must be in the state of grace. Anyone aware of having sinned mortally must not receive communion without having received absolution in the sacrament of penance. Communion with the body and blood of Christ increases the communicant's union with the Lord, forgives his venial sins, and preserves him from grave sins. Since receiving this sacrament strengthens the bonds of charity between the communicant and Christ, it also reinforces the unity of the Church as the mystical body of Christ. The Church warmly recommends that the faithful receive Holy Communion when they participate in the celebration of the Eucharist. She obliges them to do so at least once a year. Because Christ himself is present in the sacrament of the altar, he is to be honored with the worship of adoration. To visit the Blessed Sacrament is a proof of gratitude, an expression of love, and a duty of adoration toward Christ our Lord. Having passed from this world to the Father, Christ gives us in the Eucharist the pledge of glory with him. Participation in the Holy Sacrifice identifies us with his heart, sustains our strength along the pilgrimage of this life, makes us long for eternal life, and unites us even now to the Church in heaven, the Blessed Virgin Mary, and all the saints. Chapter 2, The Sacraments of Healing Through the sacraments of Christian initiation, man receives the new life of Christ. Now we carry this life in earthen vessels, and it remains hidden with Christ in God. We are still in our earthly tent, subject to suffering, illness, and death. This new life as a child of God can be weakened and even lost by sin. The Lord Jesus Christ, physician of our souls and bodies, who forgave the sins of the paralytic and restored him to bodily health, has willed that his church continue in the power of the Holy Spirit, his work of healing and salvation, even among her own members. This is the purpose of the two sacraments of healing, the sacrament of penance and the sacrament of anointing of the sick. Article 4, the Sacrament of Penance and Reconciliation. Those who approach the Sacrament of Penance obtain pardon from God's mercy for the offense committed against him, and are, at the same time, reconciled with the Church which they have wounded by their sins, and which by charity, by example, and by prayer, labors for their conversion. What is this sacrament called? It is called the Sacrament of Conversion because it makes sacramentally present Jesus' call to conversion— the first step in returning to the Father, from whom one has strayed by sin. It is called the Sacrament of Penance, since it consecrates the Christian sinner's personal and ecclesial steps of conversion, penance, and satisfaction. It is called the Sacrament of Confession, since the disclosure or confession of sins to a priest is an essential element of this sacrament. In a profound sense, it is also a confession, acknowledgement, and praise of the holiness of God and of his mercy towards sinful man. It is called the sacrament of forgiveness, since by the priest's sacramental absolution, God grants the penitent pardon and peace. 
It is called the Sacrament of Reconciliation because it imparts to the sinner the love of God who reconciles. Be reconciled to God. He who lives by God's merciful love is ready to respond to the Lord's call. Go, first be reconciled to your brother. Why a Sacrament of Reconciliation After Baptism? You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. One must appreciate the magnitude of the gift God has given us in the sacraments of Christian initiation in order to grasp the degree to which sin is excluded for him who has put on Christ. But the Apostle John also says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. And the Lord himself taught us to pray, Forgive us our trespasses linking our forgiveness of one another's offenses to the forgiveness of our sins that God will grant us. Conversion to Christ, the new birth of baptism, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and the body and blood of Christ received as food have made us holy and without blemish, just as the church herself, the bride of Christ, is holy and without blemish. Nevertheless, the new life received in Christian initiation has not abolished the frailty and weakness of human nature, nor the inclination to sin that tradition calls concupiscence which remains in the baptized, such that, with the help of the grace of Christ, they may prove themselves in the struggle of Christian life. This is the struggle of conversion, directed toward holiness and eternal life, to which the Lord never ceases to call us. The Conversion of the Baptized Jesus calls to conversion. This call is an essential part of the proclamation of the kingdom. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. In the church's preaching, this call is addressed first to those who do not yet know Christ and his gospel. Also, baptism is the principal place for the first and fundamental conversion. It is by faith in the gospel and by baptism that one renounces evil and gains salvation, that is, the forgiveness of all sins and the gift of new life. Christ's call to conversion continues to resound in the lives of Christians. The second conversion is an uninterrupted task for the whole church who, clasping sinners to her bosom, is at once holy and always in need of purification, and follows constantly the path of penance and renewal. This endeavor of conversion is not just a human work. It is the movement of a contrite heart, drawn and moved by grace to respond to the merciful love of God who loved us first. St. Peter's conversion, after he had denied his master three times, bears witness to this. Jesus' look of infinite mercy drew tears of repentance from Peter, and after the Lord's resurrection, a threefold affirmation of love for him. The second conversion also has a communitarian dimension, as is clear in the Lord's call to a whole church, repent. St. Ambrose says of the two conversions that in the church there are water and tears, the water of baptism and the tears of repentance. Interior Penance Jesus' call to conversion and penance, like that of the prophets before him, does not aim first at outward works, sackcloth and ashes, fasting and mortification, but at the conversion of the heart, interior conversion. Without this, such penances remain sterile and false. However, interior conversion urges expression in visible signs, gestures, and works of penance. Interior repentance is a radical reorientation of our whole life, a return, a conversion to God with all our heart, an end of sin, a turning away from evil, with repugnance toward the evil actions we have committed. At the same time, it entails the desire and resolution to change one's life, with hope in God's mercy and trust in the help of His grace. This conversion of heart is accompanied by a salutary pain and sadness, which the fathers call affliction of spirit and repentance of heart. The human heart is heavy and hardened, 
God must give man a new heart. Conversion is first of all a work of the grace of God who makes our hearts return to him. Restore us to thyself, O Lord, that we may be restored. God gives us the strength to begin anew. It is in discovering the greatness of God's love that our heart is shaken by the horror and weight of sin and begins to fear offending God by sin and being separated from him. The human heart is converted by looking upon him whom our sins have pierced. Let us fix our eyes on Christ's blood and understand how precious it is to his Father. For, poured out for our salvation, it has brought to the whole world the grace of repentance. Since Easter, the Holy Spirit has proved the world wrong about sin, proved that the world has not believed in him whom the Father has sent. But this same Spirit who brings sin to light is also the consoler who gives the human heart grace for repentance and conversion. This brings us to the end of our reading and the end of our episode. Thanks for joining me for another week. Between this week and next week's episode, please connect with me on Instagram at Catholic Light Podcast. I'll be praying for you. Please pray for me. And in the meantime, God bless you. Thanks for joining me this week on Catholic Light. Be sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your family and your friends. And connect with me through Facebook and Instagram. I'll see you next week. And in the meantime, God bless you.